Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Everybody and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often scandalous and uh, exciting moments in history. Uh, we are here back with our second Black History Month episode for February, getting ready to dive into a topic that I think people know a little bit about and uh, we'll have a chance to maybe illuminate more than the uh, little tidbit we often get about this incredible person. Before we get started, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca. <laughs> um, as we kick off, we want to say, first of all, thank you as always to our patrons. We love you. Thank you for keeping the lights on, keeping the podcast going. Be sure to check your patron-only feed for your special patron episodes. And it's never too late to become a patron. That's always an option. You'll get access to bonus episodes on a wide array of topics. For us here in Washington, D.C., it is special starting to be on the path to spring, I should say. For us, that means tours are ramping back up. If you haven't taken a tour with us or you have, but you want to take another, definitely check out our website, dcbyfoot.com. You can see our tour lineup. If you like us on the pod, you'll like us even better in person. And it's a chance to see some of the places that we talk about. In particular, uh, we're going to be talking about a place, a site that you can definitely visit on our podcast today. So if you want to check it out in person, come take a tour with us. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the upcoming cherry blossoms. Blossom mania will soon be upon us in Washington, but that's always a great time to come out and check out Washington, D.C. So I think I'm already thinking of spring, one, because I hate winter, and two, because there's a strong spring element to part of the story we're telling today. A key moment happens right at the height of spring. So, um, Rebecca, what are we talking about today? All right. So this is Black History Month, episode two. And we have a lot of other great Black History Month content. And we talked about Carter Woodson, who's the father of Black History Month. So we want to talk about Marian Anderson. Marian Anderson is a name that may not ring a bell, but you have probably seen or heard of her most famous interaction, which was gonna, we'll get to in a little bit. But she was a singer an opera singer and a really amazing, lovely, beautiful voice. She was a contralto soprano uh, and just, uh, we'll post, obviously there are some recordings of her in the, we'll put them in the show notes and she just has this really amazing, beautiful voice. So we're going to talk about her 
And the reason we're going to talk about her, she's African-American and she exists at this moment where we have photos and recordings of her voice, but also she's going to be a pioneer in the sort of struggle towards uh, equality. Uh, And so she kind of plays a really important and pivotal role in a bunch of different aspects. And so that's where we're going to start. But her story starts in Philadelphia. She was born in 1897, the first of three girls. Uh, She's the granddaughter of a man born into slavery who had moved when he was emancipated to Philadelphia, uh, raised a family, and then she's born to one of his kids. Right off the bat, there's the tension of racial discrimination in her life. Her mother had wanted to be a teacher, and in fact, she had trained to be a teacher uh, before her marriage. But due to a law in the area that applied to black women and not white women, she was not allowed to teach. And so she ends up making money for the family uh, by taking care of small children. Uh, Her father sold things, uh, food at the Reading Terminal Market, which is still in Philadelphia. But they're very interested in the church. They are very uh, involved. And this is sort of where Marion begins to discover that she has a talent for singing. Her aunt in particular is going to bring her to choir. And she's very quickly, even as a young kid, singing solos and branching out to other venues so she's not just at church by her teenage years she's making four or five dollars a performance which back then is like real money and it's making money and i mean we've talked a little bit in past episodes about some of the things that child and teen laborers did and how little they made so four or five bucks versus 10 cents working at a pencil factory for example um that's not bad right (laughs) um and she's clearly a star and At 12 years old, the family experiences a huge tragedy. Her father gets injured on the job and eventually dies of his injuries. And so the family can't survive on only one income, move in with her grandparents. But there is no money for singing lessons. And so Marion kind of studies with anyone who will teach her. Anyone she can get her hands on, anyone in the area who sees her talent, and there are a lot who do, and want to help her and want to coach her. And so she kind of goes around and is very much a go-getter, a self-starter, as they would say today. And her community and church will eventually raise money to get her singing lessons. So she is very clear from the get-go that she has an enormous talent that needs to be cultivated and educated and, and sort of primed for the big time. I just want to jump in and say that the congregation starts something called the Marian Anderson's Future Fund. And I love that because it was like such a testament of their belief that she was going places, that she had been really identified by her community as somebody who was going to break out of the limited roles and opportunities. So this idea of picking this one teenager, it's kind of a lot of pressure too, but they had the Marian Anderson Future Fund. And I just think that's so sweet and loving. And it's what is going to provide her that opportunity, right? To be able to seek out things that otherwise would have just been financially out of her reach. But it's also, I think, a little bit of pressure to put on the shoulders of a teenager. Yeah, that's an awful lot, man. Particularly in this era, even in Philadelphia, there's a lot of discrimination and it's just, there's a, that's a lot of pressure on somebody. She's going to apply to the Philadelphia Musical Academy, which is still with us. It's under a different name today. It's called the University of the Arts and is still in Philadelphia and is turned away because of her race. Like she literally goes to apply and is told by the woman at the counter that we don't take colored. And that's 
terrible and she decides she's not and this is the big theme of her life she decides she's not going to let that stop her uh and she goes literally will go to people of prominence in the singing world in philadelphia philadelphia had and still has a thriving art scene and she'll basically ask them to teach her and one of those people she's she has a lot of support within the black community in philadelphia uh, and she sings with a man named giuseppe boghetti who I'm assuming is Italian. I would uh, say so. Yeah, I would say a little bit. And she sings for him, and he's brought to tears by her performance and so teaches her. He schedules a recital for her in New York City in 1925. Uh, sorry, in 1924. And it's, a, it's poorly received and gets bad reviews and no one's there. But she gets her first big break about a year later. In 1925, she wins a singing competition to sing with the New York Philharmonic. And that's her, like, big break. And she beats about 300 other contestants, which is a huge number of people to be singing against. So I just find that, like, kind of stunning. Because it's one thing to be like, I entered and there were 25 of us and I won. But there were over 300, which is a lot of singers. Right, that's a lot of people. She continues her studies. She gets a manager in New York, and she has a number of concert performances. Uh, she performs at Carnegie Hall, and then kind of decides that her career is stalling because she can't sort of escape this racial discrimination that she's experiencing. And so she just decides, well, okay. I'll leave. And she goes to Europe for a while and spends a bunch of years singing in various concert halls in Europe. By this time, she's on the cusp of 30 uh, and she get further training. Uh, she actually is going to train with the composer Sibelius, kind of a thing, and they spend time together. She learns Tuscanini, who's an incredibly big deal. She makes her European debut in 1930 and like in Europe undergoes Marian fever. Like she becomes a huge deal in Europe. Tuscanini himself will say that she has a voice heard once in a hundred years, which especially coming from Tuscanini, that's quite the compliment. So she's got this beautiful voice and she's making a big concert debut and all over the place and she's making a big deal of herself in Europe, which is really, really great. Yeah, she basically spends, she spends really five years in Europe, 30, 1930, 1935 initially. And it is just an opportunity. This is not to say that Europe is free of racial discrimination. It's not to say that there aren't still obstacles, but it's a completely different environment. For the most part in cities, certainly she can perform at the best venues. She can travel more freely. They love her. They're obsessed with her voice. And what that means is she's getting constant press coverage in Europe. It feeds over to America and it starts to build her profile in America. So even though she's not performing in the U.S. for five years, she's starting to become more and more of a household name. And all of that leads to 1935, where she gets her public debut at Carnegie Hall. So finally, audiences in New York and backers in, in the States are like, you need to come back. You, you're our jewel. You're American. We want you. Come to Carnegie Hall. And so she's. this is it. This is what almost any performer dreams of, any singer dreams of. And the day before the performance, literally before she's going to get onto a plane from France to fly back, she falls and she breaks her ankle. That's not good. <laughs> but you're. what are you going to do? Reschedule Carnegie Hall? Absolutely not. She did her entire performance standing on one foot, balancing against the piano, and she had her floor-length gown covering the cast on her ankle. But that's the level of determination she had to make sure that Carnegie Hall debut went perfectly. Most people in the audience had no idea. 
later on it's reported and covered that this has happened. But in the moment, they had kept it mostly a secret from everyone except for the team at Carnegie Hall. And people in the audience had no idea. It's not mentioned in the initial reviews that she did it on one foot, which I think just shows kind of how amazing she is. And then the next year, she gets invited to the White House. Franklin D. Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, our president, first lady. And after her Carnegie Hall concert, they invite her to come to the White House where she'll be the first African-American to perform and sing there. So this is going to be the beginning of her relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt, which will be important as we move forward. She's now a thing. She's like a thing with a capital T. And she has a new manager and she's going to perform all over the place, particularly in New York. She actually is approached to become an opera singer, like actually sing at the Met Opera, but she doesn't have any acting experience. So she says no. She is not, however, immune to Jim Crow laws. Unfortunately, this is going to be a recurring theme. She gives up to 70 concerts and recitals in a year, but she'll be turned away at hotels and restaurants. And so she's performing at a sold out concert hall in a particular city and then has to find special accommodations at a hotel because they some hotels won't serve her, uh, restaurants won't serve her. And this becomes a, this is a recurring theme. This happens all over the place. And she gets a champion from a sort of unlikely quarter. Albert Einstein, yes, that Albert Einstein. <laughs> As opposed to the other you've maybe heard of. I don't know. As opposed to the other. It could be somebody else. I don't know. But anyway, he is by this time has fled the Nazis. So he understands what discrimination is. He's moved to Princeton. And he hears uh, that she has been a target of all of this. And he's just, he invites her to stay at his house in Princeton and they form this lovely friendship. First being in 1937, um, she's barred from staying in a hotel in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, Einstein hosts her, and they, like, have a, a, a friendship that lasts until the end of his life. She actually will stay with him just a few months before his death in the 50s, and so they have a lovely friendship, and there actually is a play that was written, like, a year or two ago called uh, My Lord, What a Night, uh, about their sort of unique friendship, and it's, I think, just lovely. Yeah, it's not Something I think we think of as two people who would overlap, right? You know, this sort of scientist and this artist. And yet, because of sort of this shared understanding of, of some of the discrimination of the world, form and forge this friendship. And I think it's worth noting during this time that she's kind of touring. She's the third biggest box office draw in the United States. So she is a huge moneymaker for these venues and for these concert halls and for these promoters and people who are backing her. But she still has to deal with all of these sort of Jim Crow realities. And often she just takes it upon herself to try to make it as limited, like to limit her exposure to these difficulties. She does not travel by train unless she has to because trains are segregated. She takes a private car everywhere, which is an additional expense that she covers, not her manager, not her um, team. She will often stay with friends like Einstein rather than deal with hotels. And in fact, even when hotels beg her to stay, she prefers not to because often when they want her to stay, they don't want her to come to the dining room or the bar or any of the public areas. They just want to say they had a famous person staying there, but heaven forbid she actually enjoy the amenities. And then she sort of finds in the press 
that there's some challenges too. Typically in a newspaper in this era, and this is still true, if you read a lot of the big papers, you're referred to um, as Mr. or Mrs. whatever, you know, Mr. this, Miss this. They should really be referring to her as Miss Anderson in the press, but the Southern newspapers refuse to because that would be a sign of respect. So she's often referred to as Singer Anderson or Artist Anderson, which she will write many a letter in response to. So it's, I think, fascinating to show that no matter your fame, no matter your wealth, you're not insulated from the reality of this sort of duality that we have in this country at this time, that there's just two completely different standards of how you're treated based on the color of your skin. I did not know that about the Miss Anderson versus Singer. It's, oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, come on, you know. And I mean, we're talking Miss M-I-S-S anyway, which yeah. is already kind of infantilizing yes. for someone who's 30 yeah. and, you know, a major leader in her career, but that they will simply call her artist or singer Anderson because they dare not say Miss Anderson is performing. That makes me so crazy. And this is really, I mean, she couldn't be, well, maybe after what the next part of the story, a little bit more famous, but by the late 1930s, she is the most famous singer in the United States. And she still has to deal with all of this. And I can only imagine how frustrating and just infuriating this must be like you want me to come perform at your concert hall in your town so that you can make money off of my voice but yet i can't eat in the dining room of the hotel oh i must have just been so the urge to give everyone the the finger must have been overwhelming at times um and so then we get to 1939 and this is sort of the most famous interlude in her life Washington, D.C. D.C. is at this time a segregated city. We are in the South in uh, Washington. Howard University uh, is an African-American university and is going to invite Marian Anderson to sing as part of a larger concert series. She's not the only person they're inviting. This is sort of a bigger deal. They're going to have scheduled concerts throughout the, the year. But because of her popularity, Howard doesn't have a facility big enough to accommodate all the people that they anticipate are going to come to see her. And so they are going to reach out to the Daughters of the American Revolution who have a concert hall on, they still do actually, on 17th Street, about a block and a half from the White House. Their concert hall is still there. It's still lovely. It seats, I don't know, what, four or 5,000 people? 3,700 or so, give or take. At the time, it was the largest theatrical musical venue in Washington, D.C. It is before we had the Kennedy Center. It was Kennedy Center. Kennedy Center isn't going to be built till the late 50s, early 60s. It is where the symphony performed, where the opera performed. If you came to town and you were a big deal, you performed at Constitution Hall. So, you know, it makes absolute sense that Howard would look at this and go, this is the premier venue in the city. This is obviously where we should have this concert. It makes a lot of sense. And it is, yes, it's still very much a very popular venue today. It's a beautiful, the DAR Hall is gorgeous. Constitution Hall is gorgeous. And it's, uh, you can see a wide range of people at events there. So it's sort of funny. But yes, it is, it is still, even though today, obviously not the biggest venue in DC. At the time it was, it was the biggest space and the most beautiful ornate space. And it was designed for, for music. It was designed to be a concert hall. And so they're going to apply to have her sing there and the dar the president sarah corbin robert is going to deny her permission uh hanging her hat on a local segregation laws and whites only performer policies 
this is doesn't make anybody happy. The Constitution Hall was segregated and blacks would have had to sit in the back. They did not even have segregated bathrooms, which DC law did require at the time. If you're going to have bathrooms, you got to have bathrooms, segregated bathrooms, but they have to be, you have to have both. And the DAR Hall does not have that. And so Marian Anderson's going to get denied the Howard University concert series has denied the their request to have her perform there. And this is going to cause a huge deal. Other DC venues are not an option. In fact, the District of Columbia Board of Education is going to deny a request for the use of an auditorium in a white public high school because there's no black public high school with an auditorium even near big enough. Uh, the only one that's suitable is a white public high school and they're going to get denied permission to have her perform there. And so this kicks up a massive controversy. Uh, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, uh, is going to hold a, a rally. They form a committee called the Marion Anderson Citizens Committee. And this includes a lot of influential people, including the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is A. Philip Randolph. Like A. Philip Randolph, who we're going to talk about, we talked about in the um, March on Washington episode. He is, at this time, involved in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. We're also the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, and the CIO. And, like, this is a big deal. So they picket the Board of Education. They're going to protest against the DAR. And this causes a big scandal. D.C. was, and in some senses still remains, a small town. Like, it's bigger now, certainly, than it was in the 1930s, but it's still, there's still the vibes of, like, it being kind of a small town. And whether you're in a big town or a small town, gossip travels at the speed of light. And so you're getting this massive scandal that's, like, spreading through the D.C. immediately, and it goes everywhere. And the press is going to support Anderson. Like, the Philadelphia Tribune writes that, like, there's this great quote, a group of tottering old ladies who don't know the difference between patriotism and putridism have come compelled the gracious first lady to apologize for their national rudeness. It's a big deal. Eleanor Roosevelt gets involved. It's huge. It is huge. We should mention Eleanor Roosevelt at the time was a member of the DAR, although to be frank, not an active member, which is true of a lot of first ladies. A number of first ladies have been on paper members of the DAR. In fact, Caroline Harrison was first lady and uh, president general of the DAR. So there'd been kind of this history of any first lady that qualifies becomes a member. And Eleanor Roosevelt has some real bona fides in her family tree in terms of descending from patriots who fought in the American Revolution. So she's a member, but she is also by 1939 well known for her strong stance on civil rights, an advocate for ending sort of segregation, ending Jim Crow laws, fighting against this. She is by far the more progressive and liberal one in her marriage. The president often can't be as outspoken because of his position um, and because he's the one who has to run for re-election. So Eleanor is this vocal, vocal supporter. So she, of course, is not going to remain a member of the DAR. After all this happens, she's going to very publicly resign. She also, you may know, wrote a daily syndicated newspaper column. It was called My Day. She writes this for years, for something like 15 years, she writes My Day. And it goes out daily. So people across the country read about Eleanor Roosevelt's day every day. And she dedicates one column to writing about this situation and why she's chosen to resign. So even if you lived in a tiny town and had never heard of this famous singer, by the time this controversy happens, you're hearing about it because it's in every local newspaper. The first lady's talking about it. This goes from being what might have seemed like just a little dust up in the city of Washington and becomes this national scandal. 
understandably so. And then Eleanor, being Eleanor Roosevelt, realizes that perhaps there's a way to turn this situation into an opportunity, right? There's an opportunity here to showcase Marian Anderson's talent, showcase the uh, hypocrisy of these laws, and show that true talent transcends any of this, you know, nonsense about race and, and ability. And so she's going to organize a concert. It'll take place on Easter Sunday, and it will be on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I think it's important to note this is far beyond before we get to the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom or any of the other kind of, when we think about the civil rights movement of the middle of the 20th century and those marches, this is predating that by 25, 30 years. So already the symbolism of the Lincoln Memorial is clear. We're talking about equality. We're talking about fighting, pushing back against these laws. This concert is a humongous deal. It's, it's massive. It's 75,000 people, a fully integrated crowd, 75,000 in person. It is going to be streamed live, as it were, broadcast live, I guess would be the right term, broadcast live on the radio. So millions tune in. And even though this is the Great Depression, yeah. everybody had a radio. And if you're unfamiliar with what a radio is... Ask your parents <laughs> uh, or grandparents. It's, it's a big deal. And she, the Eleanor Roosevelt is going to prompt uh, her resignation from DAR is going to prompt a lot of other DAR members to also resign in protest. The DAR looks terrible. They have the concert on the same day. So her concert was supposed to be at the DAR on April 9th, which was Easter Sunday. They have it on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And it's this massive early morning. It's this beautiful backdrop. And 75,000 people show up to see this in person. That's an enormous number. Obviously way beyond what the Constitution Hall could have held had she been performing there, like by an order of magnitude. But she, they're all, she also performs on the radio and it's broadcast across the country. And one of the many, many, many listeners to this will be a young boy named Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he's about 10 at the time and he will remember this concert later on in life. And in fact, he will point to this moment saying this was the first inkling that he had that there's a larger problem with race in this country, that it's not just his experience and it's not just his little, the what he has observed, that there's a larger issue that we need to sort of figure out. And he will credit this concert with jumpstarting his own activism, sort of putting that, planting the seed in his head uh, to sort of move forward on his own uh, as he gets older but it's this really beautiful obviously we'll put there's youtube of this so we'll put that in the show notes of her singing with the lincoln in the background is this really epically beautiful scene of her singing and imagine too and we'll again this will be in the show notes but you know imagine a massive grand piano the gentleman playing her pianist is in tails she is in a beautiful dress with a fur coat over it. If you visit today the National Museum of African American History and Culture, what she wore on April 9th, 1939 is preserved there on display up in the music area. And when you see the pictures, it's all very black and white. Obviously, all the videos you watch today are in black and white. Um, but she was wearing this beautifully brightly colored orange top and this really beautiful caramel color fur coat. So this is like, it's a just stunning visual, right? She is a beautiful, tall woman. She's dressed to the nine. She's got this grand piano. And then she sings My Country Tis of Thee. She sings Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. She sings America. Um, and she sings from an incredibly vulnerable place. It is, and she will admit this later, her most nakedly emotional performance. She allows herself to put out 
all the things she's been feeling for years, all of the discrimination, all of the ways in which she's had to fight and struggle and all, all the stuff she's faced. And she allows herself to cry. She allows herself to bring that to the music. And it's exceptionally beautiful. It is so powerful. And then you have that backdrop, right, of the Lincoln Memorial behind. But she she will admit that she sort of allows herself normally in a concert, she's more kind of structured and focused and you're, you're focused on the technicality. Here, she allows herself to break free of that and lean into the emotion. And it makes for an experience that nobody who is there that day ever forgets. Really true. The DAR will back, um, they changed their mind pretty fast. <laughs> and they're going to invite her to perform a few years later. Uh, so she actually does end up performing at Constitution Hall several times, starting in 1943. And she is asked about this later at, at a, an interview. And she says, you know, I just, it felt like singing in any other hall. Like she's very kind of classy about it and doesn't give it a big, you know, emotional scene. She just said, well, I felt no different than I had. There was no triumph. It was just, it's a beautiful concert hall and I was very happy to sing there. Uh, and so she does end up getting to perform at the D.A.R. Hall. In contrast, the D.C. Board of Education continues to bar her from using the high school auditorium in the district. So she never ends up, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, she ends up performing five or six concerts over the next like 20 years at Constitution Hall. Most notably, I think in 1964, she launches what will become her farewell world tour from Constitution Hall and uses that as a jumping off point, which again, 1964, height or entering into the height of the civil rights movement. There's a very symbolic choice there, but she does come back and perform many times and she is ultimately awarded the DAR Centennial Medal in 1992. Um, and we'll put in the show notes to a link to kind of DAR's resources on Marian Anderson today. I think it's something that the organization to which I am a member and, and, and will be blunt about that. I think the organization is aware that most people, that is what they know about DAR, is this event. And I think they have tried to be as upfront about it in a more contemporary time about the very poor decision made by the national organization. I have been heckled on a tour by DAR members about this, believe it or not. I. I do believe it. Uh, I do believe it. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, I mentioned this Marian Anderson concert on several of the Lincoln tours that I give. Like, I'm, I'm not every single tour, but I mention it quite frequently. During World War II, she entertains the troops. She goes around and sings for the, the troops. But this time, she's a bona fide star. And so her performances are better attended, but f fewer. They're not as frequent, particularly as she she's getting now into her 40s and 50s. On January 7th, 1955, she becomes the first African-American to perform at the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Opera. She's going to sing that it was a, macing, a, a witch's brew that she trembled. And when the audience applauded and applauded before I could sing a note, I felt myself tightening into a knot. And she never appears with the company again, but she's going to be named a permanent member of the Met Opera Company. She then publishes an autobiography and it becomes a bestseller. Uh, she will ultimately sing for both Eisenhower and Kennedy's inaugurations in Washington. And uh, she travels all around the, the Far East as a goodwill ambassador and sings 24, 25 concerts as she's sort of traveling around the world. She sings at Kennedy's inauguration. And then she is scheduled to sing the national anthem at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. But 
doesn't make it in time. <laughs> Which we touch on in our March on Washington episode. But, uh, you know, travel delays happen to all of us, even famous singers. And she misses. <laughs> she makes it there eventually. She does but... sing, though. <laughs> yeah, she does sing. Uh, but she misses her chance to open with the national anthem. God, that would have been amazing. Ugh. So she retires in 1965, but continues to make limited public appearances, especially her nephew. One of her sisters has a son named James DePriest, who becomes a pretty famous conductor. And so whenever he's conducting, she will come and sing to sort of really bolster and further his career. And they have this lovely, like, long collaboration. She actually, I read that she even christens a nuclear-powered submarine called the George Washington Carver, which is amazing. Um, I want to mention her personal life, too, because I found this to be a really fascinating nugget about her. She gets married in 1943. Um, and by this time she's in her forties and she marries a man named Orpheus Fisher, whose nickname is King Fisher, because obviously of course it is. And he's an architect, but here's the thing. They'd known each other as kids. They went to high school together. He's a couple years younger than she is and had proposed as teenagers. They were like teenage sweethearts. And she says no, because she's worried, you know, she's a few years older than he is and presumably a little more serious. And she wants to go be a singer. And she's worried that getting married is going to forestall that dream. And so her sweetheart, Orpheus Fisher, goes off on his own. He is uh, born to mixed parentage, uh, and but he's light-skinned enough to pass as white. And so what he ends up doing is becoming an architect. He marries a wealthy white woman in Philadelphia, and they have a kid. Their marriage doesn't work out, and at some point, him and Marian Anderson are never too far from each other's orbit because they get back in touch, and they decide to get married in 1943. And so I think, here's what really interests me about this she doesn't marry him when they're kids because she's worried that it will derail her career which honestly she's probably not wrong there's really no effective birth control back then and having kids would have really negated the ability to travel around the way that she does and so you can see her strong-mindedness you can see her ambition and her determination and they get married after she's like safely out of childbearing years when she's already a star so that there's you know very much like this is a marriage they're very happy happy together they have a very happy and loving relationship but her career was paramount for her and I feel like that's just such a really interesting tell into their relationship into her mindset into how determined she was to be something to be a big deal to use this immense talent that she's been given and I think that that's just such an interesting like nugget uh, about her yeah, it shows um, ambition, right? It shows a willingness to kind of put an opportunity for a love and a relationship kind of on the back burner. And then I love that they never lose that affection and, and connection that they have to then get married. She's well into her 40s, you know, when they finally do get married. And as you say, she's well enough established as a star at that point that she can balance kind of, right, marriage and, and career. But the truth is, in that era, right, even in the best of circumstances, and even if she had been of a different background, the idea that a married woman would have pursued a public performing career, it just was not 
not done as, as frequently. It just wasn't. You had to have an establishment. You had to be established to be able to sort of pull that off. So I love that. I think it's so cute. And definitely in the show notes, we'll put pictures of them together. They're just really adorable. They are super adorbs. And they remain very happy. They live like they have this farmhouse in Western Connecticut where they live very happily. She like goes to the store in town and the people recognize her, but they don't like make a big deal out of it. And so they live this sort of very normal, quiet, you know, existence. She does not want to be treated as a celebrity. You know, she sings sometimes at the state fair or whatever, but like they live this lovely, quiet life uh, in between her sort of later stage trips and her movings around towards the end of her career. He dies in 1986 after 43 years of marriage. Uh, she remains in residence until 1992. She, by that time, is in her 90s and not in the best of health because she's in her 90s. Uh, and so she's going to relocate her nephew, the conductor, James DePriest, lives in Portland, Oregon. And so she spends the last year of her life, he w- wants her to come out and to, he wants to care for her. And so he sort of provides her uh, with the the care that she needs in her last declining year. Uh, And she dies in Oregon in 1993, which is amazing to me. 1993. When I was doing the show notes for this, when I was like doing the outline, I texted Becca and I was like, do you know she lived into the 90s? (laughs) And Becca, because Becca knows everything, already knew this. But I didn't. I Well, I... You know, only because of, of of a few accolades she acquired right at the end of her life that I know she was still alive when we were younger. But again, it just sort of shows, one, she lives an exceptionally long time, but also we're just not disconnected, really that far disconnected from the era to which she faces these struggles. Right. It's just, it's so present. The idea that someone who sings in front of the Lincoln Memorial in the 1930s overlaps with us in some way is um, astonishing to me and that's I mean it's an incredibly long life but it's just such a lovely um, example of how present this is and she's buried with her parents in Philadelphia she's actually not buried with her husband he was buried in Connecticut and she's buried outside of Philly with her parents Um, for those Um, of you that are um, local to DC or come to visit there's quite a bit of sort of Anderson stuff to see. Certainly the Lincoln Memorial is open. There's no plaque or or particular signage there, which I find sort of interesting and think that that's something that could perhaps be filled out. But if you go to the little museum under the Lincoln Memorial, there are, um, they'll play a little clip of her singing and you'll see a little bit from that concert visually. Again, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture has the dress and the coat that she wore on um, that day. The Smithsonian actually had the coat for a long time in their collection and it was never really displayed properly uh, until the African-American History Museum was built. And so we're really fortunate to have that and have it so well preserved. It's really wonderful. Um, and if you go to the National Portrait Gallery, they have a beautiful portrait of her. It's typically in the struggle for justice portion of the museum, which looks at civil rights trailblazers. Her portrait currently is um, displayed just sort of right across the wall from Eleanor Roosevelt. So they're very close to each other. They remained very close till the end of Eleanor Roosevelt's life. She and Marian Anderson, um, uh, Eleanor would ensure that Marian Anderson be awarded a number of awards and medals from various civil rights groups. Uh, and Mary Anderson would have a champion in in the former first lady once Eleanor leaves the White House, but they remain very close. So there is a, a little bit of 
Marian Anderson you can even history go to the DAR that you can hall, go and see I believe they're open if you're to here the public. Yeah, so the the Constitution Hall typically you, you can still go and see events there. Um, I saw Anthony Bourdain there, so that gives you an idea of like the range of which <laughs> the kinds of people who perform at Constitution Hall today. It changed several of the policies for um, DAR and Constitution Hall. This was a change for the venue and the way in which those contracts were approached and the power to which one executive can sort of have over denying access to the hall. But the DAR Museum is open, uh, and again, DAR has a number of Marian Anderson's resources, we'll put it, on the website. They hosted both a 75th anniversary and a 90th anniversary concert, or a 70th and a 75th concert at the Hall to honor her. When the Marian Anderson stamp came out, they hosted the unveiling of the stamp at Constitution Hall. So um, there, there is a little bit there, but you can definitely go and see, see that. It's right just a couple blocks from the White House. And I, the portrait, I've heard the portrait gallery is her in front of the Lincoln. So it's of this moment. It's of that concert. It's like she sat for many portraits. There's many pictures of her performing. And the one that was chosen to be in the portrait gallery is of her in front of with the Lincoln in the background with that fur coat on. Very cool. I love this topic. I love her. I can't wait for those of you who haven't really listened to her sing. We'll put some YouTube links in, but definitely take a little time to go down a YouTube hole and hear her perform because as much as we're talking about her as kind of a trailblazer and, and what she did to sort of break so many of these barriers, she was also just exceptionally talented artist. And she does have a voice that is so rare in its clarity and its beauty uh, and it's in its naturalism for singing what is often very classical music uh, and manages to make it sound natural while also technical, which is not an easy thing to do. Having that technical proficiency while sounding very natural and not too contemporary. And she also is going to do something that I think is really interesting, which is open up the canon of classical music to include not just white people music. You know, she can sing all the operas and she's friends with Tuscanini and she knows all of the like the stuff that's really in the, you know, the, the expected things that you would know as a singer of her talents. But she also is going to bring a lot of spirituals and, and religious music and and sort of less traditionally elevated songs uh, into the forefront. And she records a lot of that as well. And so there's not just the like stuffy concert hall things. There's also spirituals and religious music. And it brings a lot of the African-American culture that she grew up with to inform her singing. So it's really, she breaks boundaries in a civil rights sense, but also really in a musical sense as well. So she brings that sort of background to expanding what was generally considered appropriate concert fare uh, at the time so that she does that as well. Absolutely incredible. This was such a great topic. This is a, a really good one. That was good. Yeah, we're doing good. Happy Black History Month, yeah. everybody. We are going to be back in a little bit when it comes to March and it's going to be Women's History Month. And y'all know Becca and I love us some women's history. So we're we're ready. We are ready to go. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Um, if you ever have suggestions or want to pitch the pod, you can always reach out to us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com, or check us out, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us, message us. We'd love to hear your ideas, your feedback. Um, we're building out the calendar for the rest of the year, so if there's topics you want us to cover, let us know. And hopefully, as the weather continues to get a little bit nicer, we'll see you out on a tour. So thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.